6-7W, classified top secret. Subject is Airwolf, a Mach 1 Plus attack helicopter with the most advanced weapon system in the air today. It has been hidden somewhere in the western United States by its test pilot, Stringfellow Hawk. Hawk has promised to return Airwolf only if we can find his brother, Sinjin, an MIA in Vietnam. We suspect that Archangel, deputy director of the agency that built Airwolf, is secretly helping Hawk in return for Hawk's flying Airwolf on missions of national concern. Stringfellow Hawk is 34, a brilliant combat pilot and a recluse since his brother's disappearance. His only friend is Dominic Santini, whose air service is the cover for their government work. With Hawk and Santini flying as a team at speeds rivaling the fastest jets backed by unmatched firepower, Airwolf is too dangerous to be left in unenlightened hands. Finding it is your first priority. As you can tell from that opening, Airwolf wasn't a show that was easy to describe. Created by notable writer, producer, director Donald P. Bellasario, Airwolf debuted as a mid-season replacement on CBS television on the 22nd of January 1984 and shortly thereafter in the UK on the ITV network. Ronald D. Moore, executive producer of the 2000s version of Battlestar Galactica, has said that the easiest time for a producer to get a show on the air is when they already have a show on the air. Such it was with Don Bellasuria, who, with Magnum P.I., had a sizable hit on his hands. His first show after the huge success of Magnum was the Indiana Jones-inspired Tales of the Gold Monkey, which sadly only lasted a season. His next sale was Erwolf, which, despite being much more successful than Tales, would be far more stressful. Casting for Erwolf received a lot of notice, largely for securing Jan Michael Vincent for the central role of Stringfellow Hawk. In addition to having one of the finest names ever created for a primetime television show, Hawk was also notable for his cynical demeanour, hard-boiled attitude and complete lack of self-awareness. Hawk is the manliest of manly men. He communicates in grunts and monosyllables, and he's more likely to grunt, yeah, than engage in witty banter. This taciturn nature set him apart in the 80s TV landscape of bland action heroes, but Balisario went the extra mile, adding some necessary dimension to Hawk by contrasting his machismo with various other character traits. Hawk is a sensitive, nature-loving vegetarian, given to living a rustic life in a cabin and playing his cello for passing eagles. He listens to classical music, owns a kick-ass art collection, drinks fine wine, doesn't even own a TV, and believes himself to be cursed, having lost everybody in his life he's ever loved. 
As such, Hawk treats people with disdain, distrust and derision. In fact, there are times when Hawk is not only downright unlikable, but he's frequently a complete bastard. Hawk also has no compunction about using deadly force and is completely uninterested in talk, preferring to let actions speak for him. With Erwolf, Vincent became the highest paid actor on TV, having made the unusual career move of moving from the movies back to television. This was largely because Vincent had had a highly publicised and very public battle with alcoholism, and this had reportedly made him very difficult to work with. Bellisario was said in an interview that he had very much liked Vincent's performance in The Winds of War and reached out to him. Well aware of his personal problems, Bellisario voiced his concern and Vincent assured him that he was now clean. And for the first season, he was. Vincent had some of the best eye acting in Hollywood, a useful trait when his face was mostly covered by his flight helmet. This squinty-eyed minimalism was countered by the more extrovert Ernest Borgnine as Dominic Santini. Ernie, as he was known to his friends, had an extensive resume, as well as an Academy Award under his belt, but it was his guest shot on Magnum P.I. that brought him to Bellasurio's attention. Santini was Hawk's only friend, and it's hinted that Santini raised Hawk and his brother Sinjin after their parents' deaths. Santini is in complete contrast to Hawk. He's outgoing, gregarious, and laughs heartily, being much more of a people person than Hawk. Granted, a rock is more of a people person than Hawk. Alex Cord rounded out the cast as Michael Coldsmith Briggs III, a.k.a. Archangel. Cord was best known for being the lead in Gene Roddenberry's unsold pilot Genesis 2, but had an extensive career before turning to writing. Archangel could have been a thankless role, but the writers quickly realised that Cord was quite a dexterous wordsmith and established Archangel as being eloquent, often giving him many of the show's best lines. They also developed an antagonistic relationship between he and Santini, which is where a lot of the show's humour would be derived. The only other semi-regular in the first season, if we don't count Tet, Hawk's dog, was Deborah Pratt, who played Archangel's right-hand woman, Morella. Pratt was married to producer Bellasurio, and had also appeared in Magnum as TC's girlfriend. What could easily be seen as nepotism proved to be fortuitous, as Pratt would write one of Erwolf's best episodes, and would go on to write for Bellasurio's later show, Quantum Leap. Of course, the real star of the show was Erwolf itself. Described as a black, deadly wasp in the promotional material, Erwolf was, in reality, a heavily modified Bell 222A, normally used as an Ur ambulance. The look of the chopper was designed by Andy Probert, who'd worked on Star Trek and Street Hawk, amongst others. The show called for a number of modifications to the actual helicopter, but many of the show's stunt pilots said that rather than add drag to the flying, Probert's designs were so good and realistic that they actually added to the overall flight experience. In terms of the show, Erwolf was a state-of-the-art military aircraft that had two turbo-thruster engines that, after disengaging the rotors, could propel the machine to speeds exceeding Mach 1. Its armoury was also nothing to sniff at, consisting of two offensive wing pods containing 30mm chain guns, with the underbelly featuring a retractable 40mm cannon with an auto-direction-finding ADF pod capable of 180-degree rotation. There was also a high-tech surveillance system, including external microphones and cameras with infrared filters, a mid-air refueling intake, as well as decoy launchers containing sunburst decoys to confuse heat-seeking missiles and chaff decoys to confuse radar-guided missiles. Erwolf, or the lady, as the characters in the show would refer to her, is the single finest TV vehicle to ever grace the idiot box. Sleek, yet dangerous, Erwolf just looks mean. 
Whereas the Blue Thunder looked like a regular helicopter with scaffolding on it, Erwulf wore a permanent scowl and genuinely reflected its central character. Erwulf was mean and moody and always pissed off. Probert's design had a lot to do with it, but let's not underestimate the sound design. Erwulf let loose with a horrendous howl when it flew. snorted with anger when the weapons came online. Erwulf wasn't chummy like Kit. Erwulf growled. Adding to the overall look of the show were the flight suits, still cool looking today, and the flight helmets, which snapped shut when the weapons came online. Everything about the lady oozed cool, even before we mentioned Sylvester Levy's excellent score. The pilot movie for Erwulf is one of the darkest and downbeat of the shows of this era, with the caveat that it's a cartoon compared to the TV of today. While Spellaserio's other show, Magnum, was most definitely a drama, there was a lightness of touch to Magnum that added to that show's appeal. Erwulf, by contrast, does have a sense of humour, but it's largely provided by Ernest Borgnine's copious hamming or Hawke's cynical asides. The pilot is deliberately high concept and, if analysed too much, a little bit silly. But in playing it straight, writer-director Belisario pulls this ridiculous confection off with aplomb. I did a full commentary on the film on a previous episode where I noted that this was actually a re-edited version of the TV movie, so I won't rehash that here, but I do want to make some notes about the tone of the pilot on the Blu-ray Complete series box set. I grew up watching the movie version on video, so this rescreening of the pilot was revelatory. There's a good 12 to 15 minutes of footage trimmed from the movie version, as well as alternate takes and scenes. Any mention of Hawk stealing Erwulf, or even a hint of the setup of the series that followed, is removed, but so are neat character bits and humour. What was also remarkable about the telefilm was how well it held up. Despite being a very political show with the talk of the then-still-happening Cold War, the film manages to be so of its time that it ironically ends up not dating. So much attention was paid to story, character, music, tone and editing that it still works as entertainment and, for my money, is one of the finest TV pilots of the era, with Belisario building the action and setting up the characters well. The pilot is set up for the series and as such needs a small recap. Archangel's company, The Firm, builds Erwulf on spec for sale to the CIA, but having turned a blind eye to its designer Moffat's perversions, they find themselves paying the price for their hubris when Moffat blows them all to hell and takes Erwulf to Libya. Hawk and Santini steal Erwulf back, rather easily, but the final aerial action sequence is really tense, well edited and scored. Erwulf had some excellent aerial photography due to its relatively high budget. There are some stock footage and editing goofs, but this can be forgiven when the effects work is all practical as it was here. And whilst models and matte paintings would be used extensively, this is still remarkable viewing for its time. David Hemmings guest stars in the pilot, turning an excellent performance as Moffat, a slimy, irredeemable bastard of a villain and a harbinger of where the show would go. Unlike Knight Rider or the A-Team, Erwulf frequently ended with Hart killing a boatload of people, so Hart's adversaries were often depicted as murderous themselves, so as to give the hero of the story a justification for killing them. Erwulf received a lot of criticism for its supposedly right-wing politics, but Hawk as a character is someone who doesn't seem to trust people in charge that much, regardless of their political persuasion. He's a patriot and a soldier, but his loyalties are always to his own code, rather than to whoever is in power. He takes Erwulf and hides it 
well, you'll never find it, because he doesn't trust the firm and, by extension, the government to keep their word when they say they will locate his brother, Sinjin. Erwolf is a power fantasy, but in this hugely entertaining and slightly mad pilot, it's a damn good one. Unless we forget, the central character is a vegetarian environmentalist. Hawk is also shown to be a tad naive with his black and white viewpoint, and Archangel explains the complex world of espionage to Hawk in this scene from the episode Fight Like a Dove. So you know Lobo too, huh? Everybody in the business knew him. I never heard of him. Well, that's because you're not really in the business. So you call Flying Airwolf for the firm, not in the business. Of course, you're very effective in the field. I'd trust you with anything once the action starts. I don't need a testimonial. But you know me, I always start out nice. So what's your point? You're unbending, Hawk, unswerving. You think there's a right and a wrong and that the right should always win. Not so. There's gray and beige. There's a lot of almost and compromise, political maneuvering and intrigue. The people who do that are in the business. Well, you still have a major point. Forget about helping Sarah LeBeau. Let this Kruger thing go. She knows where Airwolf is. Doesn't that concern you? We'll arrange a new hiding place for Airwolf. <laughs> You'll know where Airwolf is. Yes. Themes of the pilot are well-worn Belisario paths. Magnum, Hawk, Harmon Rab from JAG, and Sam Beckett from Quantum Leap, all new people who are MIA in NAR. All of his characters are involved in the military in some way, be they pilots or Navy SEALs, and all of them have come through relatively unscathed, except Hawk, who is clearly a damaged individual. Where Belisario's shows really scored over many competitors of the time is that he emphasised character over plot. This is evident in all of his work, from Battlestar Galactica, where it was his scripts that fleshed out the rather bland cardboard cutouts that Glenn Larson created, to Magnum P.I., where, for the first time in American television history, Vietnam vets were given a more sympathetic portrayal. This adherence to character was in place in the pilot. Whilst the sensitive loner was a cliché even before this series went into production, it demonstrated that Belisario wasn't content with the uninteresting leads of other productions, and with Belisario given full reign, the first season of the show is easily its best. It marries the darker elements of the pilot with more political intrigue, espionage shenanigans and top-flight aerial photography, and is a rare beast. A first season of a television show where everything comes together perfectly. The acting, writing, direction, sound design, costumes, photography and, especially music, form a seamless whole. The series kicks off with Daddy's Gone A-Hunting, where the emphasis on character was also applied to the guest stars, in this case, Belisario regular James Whitmore Jr. Archangel enlists Hawk and Santini's help in preventing a high-tech plane from being sold to the Russians. Hawk discovers that pilot Sam Roper, played by Whitmore Jr., has been blackmailed into stealing the plane in exchange for a son he never knew he had. Further complications arise when it's revealed that Roper's Vietnamese wife is also a former lover of Hawks, and that the child may be Hawks. It's a shame Jan Michael Vincent let his personal problems get in the way in later years, as his performances in this and other first season shows are really very good. Vincent excels at making Hawk a brooding badass, and in this episode especially, Hawk's dislike of the firm, his distrust of Archangel, and his general obstinate nature come to the fore. 
Fortunately, Dominic is here to provide comic relief, as, whilst Hawk is allowed on the Air Force base as himself, a highly decorated and respected pilot, Dom is only allowed in under cover of being a janitor. Archangel pays for that, being on the receiving end of a number of Santini's acidic barbs, as well as the wet end of his mop. There's also some great continuity, as Dominic is still unsure of how to use Erwolf, and Hawk must guide him through every step. Belisario had more respect for his audience's intelligence than Larson or Aaron's spelling, and Dominic will spend most of the first season learning how to pilot Erwolf. Daddy's Gonna Hunt and kicks the series off in fine style, blending the show's intriguing premise with a personal story to good effect. Bite of the Jackal is the second type of Erwolf plot. By its very nature, Erwolf had two basic stories. The first was that scene in the first episode. Archangel will have a delicate political problem and go to Hawk for help. The second type of story revolved around someone trying to steal Erwolf back. The series was quite woolly on who knew what about Erwolf and Hawk, but enough counter-intelligence agencies from around the world seemed aware of Archangel's deal with Hawk, so it would appear that there is a major leak in the firm somewhere. In this episode, a routine flight by Dominic is sabotaged to lure Hawk and Erwolf out of hiding, so a subordinate of Archangel, who is seeking career advancement, can steal the chopper back. Santini's life is further complicated by the discovery of a stowaway played by a young Shannon Doherty. This is a canny script by Nicholas Correa, which gives us plenty to chew on, from the firm's internal politics to Archangel providing weapons support in lieu of Dominic and doing a pretty decent job of it. Erwolf is also seriously damaged for the first time in the series. There's a lot of aerial flight time in this episode, given that most of it is on location, and it's episodes like this that contributed to Erwolf's extensive budget. Hugely entertaining throughout, Bite of the Jackal continues the series' upward trajectory, which goes stratospheric with the next episode, Proof Through the Night. Originally aired on my ITV region Granada as the first episode of the third season, Proof is one of my all-time favourite episodes. For over 20 years, an American spy, Rostov, played by the bionic woman's Rick Lenz, has been living undercover in Russia to the point where he's gone native, marrying and fathering a child. However, he has recently discovered that the Russians have developed a biological agent that kills anybody exposed to it in seconds. He has contacted Archangel to get him out of Russia with the agent. The catch is, he will only surrender if Archangel also relocates his family. Typical of the kind of plot machinations that Erwolf dealt with in its early days, this is not only a great story, but also rife with neat character scenes. Problem upon problem are piled on Hawk and Santini from the urgency of the mission, with added drama that Rostov saved Archangel's life in the early days, but also that to rescue the entire family, Erwolf must not only perform a mid-er refueling on the way there and back, but it also can't have any armament. The extra weight would make the journey untenable. Fantastic aerial scenes go without saying, but this episode also paints an admirable picture of Russian society, portraying them as people that are every bit as patriotic as their American counterparts. Again, this is something the show's critics should have paid attention to. There's a great discussion between Hogg on the nature of heroism, as Morella explained that they are the good guys. How can you tell the difference? asks Hogg. Of course, even the best productions have some flubs, and this episode has a few classics. Hawk pulls a picture of Rostov's family out of the file, a picture that bears no resemblance to the one he hands to Archangel later. When Hawk and Santini drive to the Lur to pick Erwolf up, Hawk's bobble hat disappears and reappears in between shots, and all of the footage of the lab test on animals is nicked from the movie The Andromeda Strain. 
The most interesting thing about this episode, though, is that it is a lot closer to reality than perhaps anyone would believe. Over on Facebook, Erwolf fan Tom Cherwolf Higginson has compiled a great resource called the Erwolf Guidebook. In addition to featuring loads of wonderfully geeky detail about the filming of the show, the locations used and where they were used in other Universal productions, there's also a great story about the reality behind this episode. Apparently, in April 1979, there was a real-life outbreak of anthrax in the Soviet city of Zverdlovsk, in which 64 Russian people died. Initially, the KGB denied any activities relating to biological weapons, but in 1992, President Boris Yeltsin admitted the anthrax outbreak was due to the then-secret military activity being conducted in that location. The series hits an ur pocket with the next episode, One Way Express. This one is more of a standard Knight Rider type plot, in that Santini is hired to perform a dangerous stunt for a movie, but Archangel discovers this is cover for a during gold heist by a man whose last job caused the death of Archangel's lover. The plot's a little perfunctory, but it's still a good episode for character development as we explore Hawk and Santini's relationship, even if we do get the rather melodramatic Won't you treat me as if I'm still a man? scene with Dom, where he punches String. This is an episode about ageing and how it comes to us all, and on that level it's very well done, with great scenes, apart from the aforementioned, between Hawk and Don, Hawk and Archangel, and some pithy asides from Morella. This is also the first time Santini gets to fly Erwolf alone, although he's not been confident enough to use the turbos. It's most notable though for being the first episode where String doesn't kill anyone. It's far from a bad episode, it's not even the worst of season one, that's still to come, but there's something lacking in using Erwolf to solve a gold heist. Sadly, as the series progressed, this would become more than norm, but thankfully, in these early days, it was an anomaly. Echoes from the Past is next, and this is another of my favourite episodes of the series. When Hart receives information from mercenary Peter McGregor Moore on St. John's location, he prepares to act, but on the way home he's involved in a helicopter crash that places him in a coma for 18 months. In that time, Archangel and Santini mounted a rescue mission and returned Sinjin to US soil, but at the cost of their own lives. With Sinjin alive and well, Hawk must return Erwolf to the firm. You can pretty much guess where this one is going from the episode description. Of course, it's all a ruse by a foreign power to get their hands on Erwolf, and it's interesting that it's Santini's loyalty to Hawk that saves Hawk's life, but Hawk's skills in the chopper that save the day. On the one hand, this is perhaps the silliest of the early episodes, with Hawk surviving a horrendous crash that clearly destroys the cockpit, stock footage from the James Bond movie For Your Eyes Only, and Erwolf being shoved out of a cargo plane. But within the show, some of these moments are explained. See, Hawk never actually crashed. It was all a hoax, and Erwolf falling out of the back of a plane and Hawk having to start the helicopter in mid-air is such a tense, nail-biting and incredibly well-edited scene, I didn't really pay attention to how implausible it was until later. It's pretty unforgivable that Hawk doesn't recognise his own brother from a photograph, though. Still, there are some lovely shots of Erwolf taking up from the Valley of the Gods, which was actually filmed in Monument Valley in Utah. This episode is also noteworthy for featuring one of Erwolf's signature moves. Whereas other lesser shows always featured stand-ins for real places, Erwolf wasn't afraid to name names, and after Gaddafi was mentioned in the pilot, here we see Hart being convinced that he's really 18 months in the future by the divorce of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. It's a really clever way to try and trick Hawk, but Hawk figures it all out via perfectly normal means. He realises that he wouldn't have calluses if he'd been in a coma for 18 months. 
There's a couple of goofs. The stock shot of the helicopter crash is as silly as I mentioned, and Peter McGregor Moore becomes Patrick for one scene. But this episode is slick entertainment, and in the tag at the end, very, very funny. Here it is. in a half dozen locations. Well, how come you're always here? You flew in with Dom. Didn't he tell you that we found your helicopter in the desert? Yeah. Well? Well, what? Well, what happened? Did the Swatch Creek grab you? Did they get Airwolf? I mean, is it safe? Are you still in the country? I don't know. Yes, no, and in that order. He dumped his helicopter out of the back of a cargo plane. You had a civilian with you? I'm no civilian. I'm a nurse. Susan helped me escape. So she knows where Airwolf is hidden? Is that what you call his helicopter? We didn't tell her the name. We thought we'd keep that from her. So she knows where it is? Sorta. Sorta? What? Should I tell him? I don't think so. You're right, String. Michael's such a blabbermouth. This isn't humorous. Oh, hey, look, I really don't know. I saw a lot of snow and a lot of scenery, and it all went by very fast. Besides, I was asleep when we landed. Well, thank God. Sorta. Fight Like a Dove casts the Walking Dead's Tova Felcher as Sarah LeBeau, a woman who seemingly manages to track down where Elf is hidden with relative ease. Her reason for locating Hark is that her father, Harry LeBeau, was a Nazi hunter who has brought a number of escaped Nazi war criminals to justice. However, LeBeau was bitten off more than he can chew when he tracks down Helmut Kruger, a great performance from James Bond's Walter Gotell, who kills LeBeau. Sarah wants Hawk and Erwulf to help her penetrate his fortress in Paraguay, a fortress built on the blood money Kruger has made from selling arms. This being Erwulf, Kruger has a state-of-the-art weapon system, Thor, four simultaneously fired missiles that destroy aircraft via both heat-seeking and radar targeting systems. Further complicating matters is Archangel is in bed with Kruger. Guttel's pronunciation of Thor as Thor throughout the episode is hysterical. I was surprised to learn via Mark J. Kahn's excellent Erwulf-themed website that this episode was not particularly well thought of by fans, as it's another one of my favourites. For one, there's a lot of aerial action, and Erwulf is featured significantly, including a fantastic ending where Hawk uses his smarts to outthink and outfly the Thor system. Secondly, this episode is incredibly grey in its outlook. In the clip I played you earlier, you heard Archangel point out that Hawk lives in a black and white world, something that Morella also mentioned in Proof Through the Night. But that is a luxury that Archangel can't afford. 
We see once again that the show is not afraid to criticise its own government, here establishing that Archangel, and by extension the government, is working with Kruger in some capacity. And as such, Archangel doesn't want Erwolf involving himself in this, even though Kruger was a Nazi. Characterisation of all the characters, including the guest stars, is excellent, with Sarah managing to penetrate Hawk's moody exterior, something that delights Santini, and she even gets to wound Archangel, shooting him in the ear. The opening of the episode is also excellent, with Hawk and Santini taking Erwolf as high as she will go just because they can. Santini lamenting that the lady wasn't designed to be a spaceship is not only really cool, but also sets up the second season episode Moffat's Ghost. There are issues, exactly how Sarah found Erwolf is never clarified, and that there are now two women out there that know where Erwolf is is also problematic. Ignoring these though, it's another standout show. Mad Over Miami, though, is the weakest episode of the season. Dom has flown to Cuba with $2 million to pay the ransom of two prisoners of war, people he knew in World War II. To nobody's surprise, it's a trap, and the money is stolen by the very men Dom was supposed to pay, albeit in disguise. They then demand another million on top of the two already agreed upon, leaving Dom no choice but to turn to String and Erwolf to help out. It's quite amazing as we go through the series how many of Dom and String's friends and colleagues have problems over the years that can only be solved by a stolen piece of military kit. But there you go. It's hard to say why this episode is so unmemorable, but it is. I couldn't remember anything about this one when I popped it in the Blu-ray player, and I recall very little of it now. The direction by David Hemmings is good, and there's a lovely shot of Erwell flying into the sunset at the end, footage that was nicked for the end of the movie version of the pilot, but on the whole, kind of meh. And They Are Us is the next episode, written and directed by Nicholas Correa. This is back to being top flight Erwolf. Hawk and Santini are sent to South Africa to prevent a civil war breaking out between North and South Limbawe. On the one side, rebels and mercenaries. On the other, the political activist Siko Logana. The reason for Hawk's interest is that the mercenaries have recruited Colonel Martin Vidor, a former Vietnam pilot and commanding officer of Hawk's in Nam. Vidor was believed to be dead, as he went down in the same mission as Sinjin. This is a seriously politically tinged episode, offering fictional accounts of real events in Zaire and the characters of General Ali Butami, the mercenary, and the government representative Harold Nogomo being fictionalised versions of Joseph Mahutu and Patrice Lumumba. It was very odd to have an action-adventure show of this vintage be this overtly political, and the firm has a very real stake in the outcome. Of course, Hawk is the superior moral authority, but once again it's made clear Hawk has no interest in politics. He's a humanist who, ironically, dislikes people. The characters are nicely drawn in this one, with Vido, played by Christopher Stone, being Hawk's player on the other side. He's a chopper jockey that is every bit as good as Hawk, a man who loves seat-of-the-pants flying and mano-a-mano dogfights that don't rely on technology. Vido is torn throughout this entire episode, a man who came out of Nam and decided he liked being dead, so started selling his skills to the highest bidder, even if he really hates the people who are paying him. He's initially happy to see Hawk and more than pleased to take him on in the air. The ending is particularly well handled. Hawk bests Vido because the show is called Erwolf and not the mercenary adventures of Marty Vido, but Vido tells Hawk he knows where Sinjin is just before he commits suicide by crashing his chopper into a mountain. It's a pretty brutal ending, giving the main character something only to snatch it away from him instantly. 
For today, there are a few racial stereotypes in this episode that wouldn't pass muster by today's standards, but Erwulf's rather blatant political incorrectness in certain areas is what makes it interesting to watch. That said, there's no overt racism, and the main cast are now working very well together, although all Archangel does in this one is give Hawk his mission and then disappear until the tag. It's a solid episode, though, emphasising what made Erwulf stand out from the pack in the early days. Mind of the Machine is a fan favourite, and justifiably so. David Carradine plays Dr Robert Winchester, one of the early candidates for the pilot of Erwulf, when it was in the prototype stages. Now a scientist, he's designed an Erwulf simulator, but needs Hawk to advise on the project, but our taciturn people-hater isn't too accommodating. It's only when Archangel points out that it's not just to be able to one day replicate Erwulf that they need to do this experiment, but they also need to know how Stringfellow Hawk, in his prime, flew Erwulf, and then Hawk agrees. Of course, with Erwulf away from the lure, Nefuria's bad guys are out to steal her when it's revealed that Winchester's girlfriend and fellow scientist is secretly selling them out. This is one of the better episodes of the series generally. The characters are nicely drawn and Hawk's rivalry with Winchester is explored to its fullest. Winchester believes he's every bit Hawk's equal, and a lot of the fun of the episode is these two men waving their dicks around to see who's is bigger. Through the simulator, we even get to see an Erwulf versus Erwulf dogfight, although it isn't as impressive as Season 3's Erwulf 2. It comes as no surprise that Hawk is revealed to be the better man, but he's impressively obnoxious throughout the episode, and that's always fun, even if he mellows towards Winchester towards the end. The firm aren't made out to be terribly bright, though. After convincing Hawk to engage in the duel, the bad guys of Indeterminate Race make their first move, and Archangel points out that only Dom, Hawk, Winchester and the girlfriend knew Erwulf was there, yet they never suspect her. It's a nice turn of events that Winchester isn't a bad guy, he is genuinely only interested in who is the better pilot, but the good guys aren't painted in the best light when there's only two suspects and they instantly suspect the wrong one and never even question the other. The episode also has a nice downbeat ending and we get to see the Erwulf mock-ups used to film the show, a nice peek behind the scenes. Aerial photography is again top-notch, and we're reminded just how much we've lost thanks to the advent of CG. Yes, computers are marvellous tools, but I think part of the appeal of this show is that it's a real helicopter, piloted by real pilots and filmed by real cameramen that adds a great deal to its authenticity. The season concludes with To Snur a Wolf, another top-flight show, and favoured by many as the best of the season. I wouldn't quite go that far, but any episode that ends up in the Guinness Book of World Records must be worthy of note. In this episode, Federal Agent D.G. Bogart, played by none other than Colonel Decker himself, Lance Legault, musters all the power of the department in a concentrated attempt to bring Hawk in for the theft of Erwulf, dead or alive. What follows is a cat-and-mouse game as Hawk must try to hide Erwulf somewhere Bogard's superior satellites can't find it, whilst he and Dom also work on photographing a training film of a B-52 bomber run for the army. Whilst to snur a wolf is damned entertaining and enjoyable, there are enough flaws in it to prevent me from calling it the best of the season. For one, ultimately Bogard is on the side of the Angels. Yes, he's a bit manic in his attempts to retrieve Erwulf and admits that destroying her would be considered a success, but he's still a fed, and Hawk has stolen a top-secret prototype. With that in mind, it beggars belief Bogart could be arrested, as in the end of this story, and be the one running scared, when the climax of the show clearly demonstrates that Hawk has Erwulf to a number of army personnel and civilians. I don't know why he even tries to keep it a secret anymore. 
It's also a huge suspension of disbelief that Bogard doesn't drag Archangel down with him, given that this is more than proving Archangel is in on the whole deal. All that being said, this is still a fun episode. In addition to Legault, Kathleen Lloyd guest stars as Antonio Donatelli, a pilot with designs on working for Santini Er, and Jeff McKay appears as a nosy sergeant. And when all three are on screen together, one could be forgiven for thinking they tuned into Magnum P.I. instead. The dialogue is good and the action well shot. It's also nice to see Hawk use his brains to get out of a problem instead of just blowing stuff up, something we've only seen once or twice. His final gambit, using the B-52 bomb raid to cover his escape, is genius, and a reference to Brer Rabbit is always appreciated. The season closes in atypical style. No real bad guys and no political turmoil. Antonia is offered a job with both the firm and Santini Er, and as usual of shows of this vintage, there's no real closure. The series could have ended here, and it would have been a perfectly formed 12 episodes of TV. Watching this first season again, I was impressed by how entertaining they still were, and how well the Blu-ray transfer held up. I think the appeal of the show to me, beyond the interesting characters and crisp action scenes, is that there is almost a Marvel superhero TV show buried in here somewhere. The central character is a damaged hero with major character flaws, but rugged and likeable despite all that. He has a secret lure, a kick-ass piece of tech, a secret identity, and a costume and mask, if you want to stretch it to call the flight suit and the helmet such. It's purely wish fulfillment from Belisario, but that's what TV used to be. A chance to leave the real world behind for an hour and imagine how cool it would be to have our own high-tech chopper we could blow our enemies up with. However, the series was only a moderate success, and as such the network demanded changes to better realise the show's potential. They had three main demands. One, no more political stories. In fact, wouldn't the show be better off without Archangel and the firm completely? Two, we need a woman. And three, why does Hawk have to be such a loner and miserable bastard? On the first point, Belisario wouldn't budge. Without the firm and Archangel, Hawk was a domestic terrorist who'd stolen a piece of US military hardware and was holding the government to ransom with it. Whilst he would do episodes without Archangel and the firm, as well as tell more domestic stories, he wouldn't eliminate the firm or the political angle completely. For the third point, Belisario caved slightly. Hawk would be less cynical and obstreperous in the future, even if that played against Jan Michael Vincent's strengths as an actor. For the second point, though, Belisario capitulated completely. To be fair, he was taking steps in that direction anyway, with Tusnura Wolf ending in such a way that the audience were led to believe Antonio would be a regular next season. As it was, this idea was abandoned. Antonio would never be seen again, and Lloyd jetted off back to Hawaii in the cushy job of being the woman that bailed Thomas Magnum out of trouble on a recurring basis. Instead, another Magnum vet, Jean Bruce Scott, would be drafted in to play Caitlin O'Shaughnessy. Unlike other shows of the time, Caitlin would be properly introduced into the show, rather than just appear as if by magic. The first episode of the second season, Sweet Britches, also doubles as a slight reformatting of the show, with a slightly modified premise. In this episode, Hawk receives the first of what would be many phone calls from old friends who are in trouble. When Hawk and Santini in Erwolf naturally investigate, we learn that this is yet another retelling of the most dangerous game, with the corrupt sheriff using prisoners for sport for high-paying hunters. Sweet Britches is hugely entertaining, but there's no denying Erwolf has been dumbed down slightly. The cabin, the cello, the show's political storylines and Archangel are all nowhere to be seen. Hawk smiles and jokes a lot more, and the tone of the show in general is a lot lighter. 
The plot, small town Texan sheriff is up to no good. Selling prisoners to be hunted for cash is standard 80s action TV for, and the episode even sounds a little bit off, with Sylvester Levy's incidental score being replaced by a far more dated and generic 80s synth knockoff by Ian Freeburn Smith. Sweet Britches, originally entitled Mirror Maid, is notable for being the only other episode Donald P. Bellasario ever wrote for the show. It manages to imbue some commentary into the proceedings with a non-too-subtle dig at people who hunt lions for sport. Jean Bruce Scott is instantly likeable, bringing a feistiness and charm to her role as a Texas Highway Patrol chopper jockey. But I do question the wisdom of casting Lance Legault and Jeff McKay in back-to-back episodes, albeit as different characters. Legault, for his part, at least looks different, never removing his sheriff's hat and sunglasses. The plot also relies on Hawk doing something very, very dumb, revealing his name to Caitlin just so she can find him in the future. The aerial footage is still excellent, and unlike other shows of the time, Erwolf still meets out biblical justice, with Hawk blowing up the sheriff's station and killing the sheriff and his men, but given they were rapists and murderers, I doubt the audience shed too many tears. As a one-off, this would have been fine, but sadly, it was to be the norm from now on. The second season is nowhere near as good as the first, and as such, the best episodes are the ones that harken back to season one. Moffat's Ghost, the third episode of the season, sees the return of David Hemmings as Charles Moffat, who has programmed a computer virus into Earl to destroy her if it does not receive a pre-programmed message after a year. This is a good episode highlighting the political nature of the series. Erwolf is supposed to be retrieving an American diplomat from Russia when it starts taking pot shots at passing aircraft, something that wouldn't go down too well in Moscow. This episode is notable for the amount of miniatures it used as opposed to practical flying, although it probably would have been difficult to fly Erwolf into the upper atmosphere. Other standouts include Fallen Angel, an exceptional episode written by Deborah Pratt that only came about because Jan Michael Vincent broke his arm in a drunken argument with his girlfriend. In this show, Caitlin has to step into Dominic's shoes when Erwolf is sent behind the Iron Curtain to rescue Archangel, who has been brainwashed by enemy agents. This episode shows Pratt to be a really good writer, adept at action, drama and comedy, all of which would see her in good stead as the producer on Quantum Leap. HX1 pits Erwolf against its first real competition, another state-of-the-art prototype helicopter which Hawk believes to have been stolen by Sinjin. Sadly, the prospect of Hawk versus Hawk, both in souped-up weapons of mass destruction, was not to be. Condemned sees Hawk and Caitlin forced into working with the Russians when they are both stranded on an island infected with a deadly airborne virus. Another in the enemies forced to work together only to realise they aren't that different subgenre, this is nevertheless one of the more entertaining episodes of the season, featuring a guest turn from Dr. Rudy Wells himself, Martin E. Brooks, and a no-show from Ernest Borgnine. Short Walk to Freedom ends the season in fine style, when Erwolf is stranded in the desert by an armed militia, the problem here being they're also protecting a class full of children on a school trip. Sadly though, for every good episode in year two, there are a number of weaker ones. Archangel's presence is very much missed when he's dropped from a number of shows, and plots suddenly revolve around Erwolf helping out alcoholics in Firestorm, helping Dom clear his name of murder in Sins of the Past, helping out country singers in Out of the Sky, and protecting Dom's loony niece from domestic abuse in The Truth About Holly. These may all be worthy causes, but shoehorning Erwolf into them frequently elicits guffaws. Nowhere is this more in evident than the end of the aforementioned Sins of the Past, where Hawk blows up a casino in front of the population and the police, simply to prove Dom innocent of a crime. 
He doesn't even pretend it isn't him as he announces his presence over Erwulf's speakers. It's frankly laughable at this point how Hawk can even deny he has Erwulf. Erwulf also found itself battling regurgitated movie plots in season two, along with the aforementioned Condemned, which is a variation on the Andromeda strain, Flight 093 is missing, took a trip into disaster movie territory when Caitlin's plane is hijacked by terrorists and crashes into the sea. The main problem in the second season is one of tone. It may very well be noble to tell stories about how corporations screw over the little guy, how important it is to unionise, or to delve into the character's backgrounds, but ultimately the episode has to culminate in an aerial dogfight. Now, in the first season and sporadic episodes after that, Hawk and Erwulf were involved in international incidents involving rogue nations with private armies. And when Hawk killed, it was in self-defence, in the aid of innocence, or to protect his country and the world. However, there are episodes in season two where Hawk is killing because he can, and that's not noble or heroic. A collection of corrupt businessmen may very well be scum, but do they really deserve to die in a fiery conflagration? Behind the scenes, Belisario was at the end of his rope. Tired of the demands CBS were putting on the show to reduce the cost of the production, the pressures to further alter the tone so the quality of the series scripts gutted by the addition of frankly inane story ideas. These more domestic plots were stretching credibility in even having Hawk involved with these scenarios at all, let alone having any need for a heavily armed top-secret military vehicle. Being on set was no bed of roses either. Jan Michael Vincent's problems with drink started to resurface and he became increasingly belligerent, often getting into offset troubles that included a number of drunk driving and violent incident reports. One reporter who visited the set for an article had one unnamed technician refer to it as an unhappy set. Always has been, always will be. And by season's end, Don Belisario, used to working with the far more laid-back Tom Selleck, quit the show tired of the drama caused by Vincent and his antics, and fed up of fighting the network. With Belisario out the door, Bernald L. Kowalski steps in as executive producer. For the third season, Kowalski pretty much seemed to decide that Erwulf was a balls-out action show, and whilst he would have the occasional plot that followed the political intrigue of the first season, this made for a less schizophrenic third season. The changes are notable from the start. The opening credit sequence, whilst not given a radical overhaul, now features more shots of Caitlin and Hawk firing or cocking pistols. The greatest change, and one that signifies the new direction more than any other, is a rather simple one. Yeah, Michael Vincent's title card is no longer the brooding isolationist Stringfellow Hawk, sitting by the lake playing his cello, rather he's wearing a tux, pouring champagne, and laughing surrounded by friends. It's subtle, but it's definitely a signifier of where the series is heading. Even with these changes, the third season kicks off well. The Horn of Plenty sees Jean Rivette Richard Lynch guest star as John Bradford Horn, a man obsessed with amassing great wealth and shiny things, and there's nothing more shiny than Erwolf. He brainwashes Hawk into shooting Santini and stealing Erwolf for him, but reckons without Caitlin and Archangel, who have access to a serum developed by the firm that nullifies most brainwashing techniques. The Horn of Plenty succeeds in giving Erwulf a recurring and personal villain and has some pretty cool action sequences filmed at Vasquez Rocks. There's a great femme fatale in the shape of former Mrs. Hasselhoff Catherine Hickland and Vincent steps out of his stupor with a great performance when he awakens from the brainwashing believing that he's killed Dom. There's an expanded role for Caitlin as well and a hint that she'll be allowed to fly Erwulf on a mission or two in the future. Sadly, I shouldn't have got my hopes up about that. As I've mentioned, the focus is now more action than before, but maybe that's for the best. If Erwolf can't be a political espionage Cold War drama anymore, 
then focusing on being a straight-up action series isn't the worst development. Earl 2 is the next episode, and whilst being one of the more memorable episodes of the run, as evil twin episodes tend to be, this is quite shoddily put together. The external shots of the pilots in Earwolf 2 don't match the internal shots at all, and there are some unforgivable character changes, such as Hawk tucking into a meal of roast pork at the end. Taken purely on an action level, though, the episode is one of the best. Wings Hauser portrays the other Earwolf pilot, Harlan Jenkins, as an utter asshole, and the dogfights are well done. The season continues in this vein, with most episodes having similar plots, mostly revolving around top-secret high-tech equipment that Hawk ends up blowing out of the sky. Fortune Teller is interesting as Archangel is captured and tortured, and Hawk and Santini must rely on that 80s staple, the Psychic, to help them out. And A Child Shall Lead features a Down Syndrome child with the ability to recreate any drawing from memory, something that appeals to some bad guys who want him to duplicate his father's new missile plans. And Crossover features a Czechoslovakian defector in an action-packed episode marred only by sloppy use of stock footage. Elsewhere, repetition setting. Kingdom Come has Hawk and Santini track down stolen nuclear missiles. Eagles features a stolen advanced aeroplane called the X-400. Annie Oakley, a stolen top-secret laser device named the Mongoose. And the only thing about the plots that was different was what device was stolen this week. Eagles is interesting in that Erwolf doesn't show up until the end, but it's a pretty good dogfight of mostly new footage, but also because the performances of Nancy Everhard and Jan Michael Vincent in a rare third season moment of lucidity are quite engaging. Also of interest, Hawk has this moment of self-awareness. So, you run an air service? Yep. Well, I uh, work for a clandestine government agency. I have a top-secret aircraft that I keep in a cave. I live in a mountain cabin and I have a dog with some girls dresses. Unemployed, huh? Annie Oakley is fun but dumb. In addition to there being a number of scenes that make you wonder when logic was thrown out the window, such as where Hawk lands Erwolf in the middle of a Wild West show. Granted, it's shut for the day, but didn't this used to be top secret? Jenny is a good episode concerning refugees and a kidnapped scientist, notable for Erwolf going up against tanks operated by a computer. Where of all the children gone takes a few pot shots at draft dodgers and culminates in a tense and exciting sequence where Erwolf must stop eight nuclear missiles all aimed at Washington, D.C., this sequence could have done with being a bit longer, to be honest, and having a tad more money spent on it, as it's easily one of the best set pieces of the series. Half Pint is a character piece, where Hart learns Sinjin has a son, and must come to terms with the fact that his brother's never coming back. The third season threw a lot of earlier seasons work out the window, so addressing the Sinjin loose ends was welcome, even if they flatly contradict earlier episode accounts of Sinjin's disappearance. Wildfire is terrible, a tedious tale of a father and son who don't see eye to eye on what it means to be a man that barely features Jan Michael Vincent at all. The episode also features Hawk and Santini booking Erwolf in for a checkup with a random mechanic. Once again, this is a top secret military prototype. Discovery and Day of Jeopardy are both really good. Discovery features the return of John Bradford Horn from the season opener, now played by John Vernon for no adequately explained reason. He's back after Erwolf when a ditzy female chancer stumbles across the helicopter's hideaway. Whilst the episode makes very little sense, and also pretty much tells Archangel where Erwolf is, it's a fun romp with some good scenes. Day of Jeopardy features an old girlfriend of Hawks who aborted their baby back when they were young. She's now in serious trouble, and is put into witness protection by Archangel, who is desperate to bring down her husband, an international criminal. 
The chronology on this one makes very little sense, as we were told in the pilot that Hawk's long-term girlfriend was killed before he shipped out to Vietnam. But it's nice to have an episode that is Erwolf-heavy, even if a lot of it is stock footage from the pilot. Little Wolf has Erwolf rescue a baby and its mother from the clutches of the evil mother-in-law. And if you're asking what the hell this has got to do with an espionage show about a military combat chopper, I'm right there with you. Desperate Monday has Brian Cranston as the bad guy and makes us wonder if Caitlin should ever go on holiday again. After being held hostage on a plane in Flight 093 is missing, here she's held hostage on a boat. Hawk's Run is one of the better balls out action episodes. Hawk is visiting a friend who wants him to work for him, but he's hit, supposedly by the firm. We know something is up because the firm's execution squad is led by Ray Wise, who always plays the bad guy. Hawk escapes by jumping into the backseat of a passing car, a car that belongs to a beautiful young lady, because this is an 80s action show. The lady is played by Wendy Schaal, better known nowadays as Francine Smith on American Dad. As the title suggests, Hawk spends the episode fleeing for his life, all the while trying to get to Dom and get Erwolf to pull his tail out of the fire. Hawk's run scores because, like the better Erwolf episodes, it establishes that the cannon fodder are still people. The secretary and janitor at the building of Hawk's friend are well-drawn and likeable characters, in but a few lines of dialogue, so we feel sorry for them when Ray Wise kills them. Likewise, Wendy Sherl's character is established as an avid reader of romantic fiction, which gives her a larger-than-usual vocabulary for these shows. She's quite enjoyable in a thankless role. Hawk even takes her up in Erwolf at the end as she desperately wants to know how the story ends, but she's actually horrified that it ends with Hawk blowing everybody to hell. Hawk's run is fast and fun, if throwaway, but it's head and shoulders above breaking at Santa Paula and the girl who fell from the sky. Both are moderately interesting action pieces that are amazingly dumb in both plot and execution. Break-In is yet another Hawk breaks the law to rescue somebody who's been wrongfully imprisoned episode, but other than having Caitlin and Dominic dressed as a priest and a nun, it's just silly. Jane Merrow, a Poundland version of Sarah Douglas, rocks up with an entire backstory for Hawk as a teenager that just doesn't jibe with what we know about him from other episodes. And then, against all common sense, Hawk tries to bust her son out of a South American prison camp. Girl is also remarkably silly. Whilst night fishing, Hawk sees a body dropped in the lake near his cabin by two of the most inept hitmen in the history of ever. Hawk quickly finds himself embroiled in a government cover-up by a senator on the fast track to the presidency. Neither episode is particularly bad, but we're clearly going through the motions. Tracks, however, the penultimate episode of the series, is bad. Whilst the third season should be commended for the diversity, seeing as we have Down Syndrome kids and disabled veterans, this story of Hawk being a safety officer for a collection of ragamuffin mountain climbers with disabilities barely qualifies as an episode of Erwolf. See, it turns into yet another take on the most dangerous game, when Hawk crew are hunted by a notorious woodland dweller, the Catman, an unhinged woodsman who can't abide people hunting his big cats that roam free in the mountains. Ignoring that a collection of wheelchair-bound mountain climbers with no weapons aren't really in any position to hunt animals, the Catman is characterised extremely badly. At first, when he stops two hunters from killing a lion for fun, it seems like the writers are going to do an anti-hunting episode, but the Catman then switches to hunting the disabled men simply because they are men on a mountain, and must therefore be guilty of shooting the cats. The episode can't make up its mind which tack to take. Is Catman a decent man just trying to protect endangered species, or is he an unhinged nutjob? 
Add to this that the episode ends with Erwulf against a man armed with a bow and arrow, and we see the problems of telling stories that have no right being an Erwulf episode, shoehorning the titular chopper in for a 30 second cameo. The episode is also uncomfortable nowadays for seeing Jan Michael Vincent singing about losing a leg, when in real life he's had to have his left leg amputated. The final episode of the series Birds of Paradise brings back Levan Hawk from the earlier Half Pint, and is again pretty much unlike any other episode of Erwulf. Whether this is a good thing is up to the viewer, I suppose, but I quite like the change in pace. As the last episode, the producers clearly decided to retool the show, perhaps as a last-ditch attempt to be renewed. And, as with the final episode of the A-Team's fourth season, this is an atypical adventure, recasting the show as Miami Vice, complete with designer clothes, pop songs and drug smugglers. The score, in addition to featuring contemporary pop songs, is also very different from previous episodes, being a more dated synth score that sounds like it was made on a Spectrum ZX. Livan turns to Hawk for help when his mother disappears trying to find her sister. Hawk discovers she's dead, killed by a notorious drug smuggler who runs a film production company that runs cover for his activities. Conveniently, the firm have been after him for years, so Hawk uses Erwulf as bait. The series concludes with Hawk adopting Livan as his own. Birds of Paradise is quite a silly episode, with Hawk taking Levan into nightclubs, exposing him to prostitutes, and getting him kidnapped and shot at, all of which wouldn't bode well on his adoption paperwork. The attempts to be Miami Vice don't quite work, and this ends up being one of the most dated episodes in the run as a result of trying to be hip and 80s. As is typical of the time, there's no real closure. Sinjin isn't found and Hawk doesn't return Erwulf, but he does adopt Sinjin's child, and along with Half Pint, we can extrapolate from this that Hawk is accepting that his brother isn't coming back, and by taking Livan in, he can have the next best thing Sinjin's son to raise as his own. The third season may be a step up from season two overall, simply because it's far less ambitious. It's nowhere near as good as the first season, though, and this is reflected in the shoddiness of the overall production. The Earlwolf 2 cock-ups aside, there are clear editing gaffes in each episode, and whilst the show always struggled with matching up shots of Earlwolf having its weapons deployed and not between shots, actually making a big deal of showing the weapons deployed and then having Dom ask for them is just lazy. Dom will board Earlwolf in civvies, be in his flight suit from the internal season, and then back out in his civvies. Hawk will look over his shoulder to see Dominic in one moment, to be seen to look at Caitlin in the next. Both men change seats with alarming regularity, and there seems to be entire episodes without any new footage of Jean-Michael Vincent in the cockpit at all. Rather, the producers just splice together footage from other episodes and have him redub the dialogue. This rather blatant dismissal of the audience's intelligence is probably why a lot of TV of this era gets a bad rap. We're not expected to watch intently or pay attention. Just let it wash over you until the next set of commercials. Ertime is also filled up with more gunfights and car chases, something Erwolf didn't really bother with in its first two seasons. The changes to the budget reduce Erwolf to a cameo appearance at about the 40-minute mark, though to blow shit up and then be put back in the cave with precious few episodes actually about the firm, espionage, Sinjin or Erwulf's position as a top-secret piece of military hardware that certain parties would kill to own. By season three, Hawk's ownership was pretty much an open secret, with even the president surely aware of it after Hawk's success in preventing Washington from being a smoking crater in the ground. Whilst there was more action, it was the generic action of other shows of the time. Still, 
Airwolf is an enjoyable action-adventure series. Creator Donald Bellasurio should be commended for at least trying to marry an outlandish high-concept to character-based drama. And it's all too easy to dismiss this as a series about a helicopter, which the best episodes aren't, even if it is a damn good helicopter. It's also an 80s action show, with all the good and bad that that entails. Women are eye candy, nothing more, unless they're femme fatales. Caitlin started the show as a competent pilot and mechanic. By the end, she's babysitting whilst Hawk and Dom go out and do the manly stuff. The heroes are also always right, meaning there's precious little character development. Hawk is actually conspicuous by his absence a lot of the time during the third season, presumably down to Jan Michael Vincent's problems, and the formulaic nature of the show by the time it entered its third season must have also played a part in its cancellation. Frequently, I would be watching an episode and the music would kick in, prompting some member of the family to ask, Are we at the 43 minute mark already? On the plus side, the show is a balls-out celebration of manly men doing manly things. There are helicopter duels, questions of morality, simply cool visuals, and that score. Erwolf was an expensive show that only had 55 episodes in the can when it was cancelled. With at least another 10 episodes needed for the bare minimum requirements for syndication, Universal Pictures greenlit a cheap sequel series to be lensed in Canada with an all-new, re-cheaper cast. The original Airwolf helicopter was stripped of all the Andy Probert-designed add-ons and press-ganged back into service as an air ambulance when the series was cancelled, so the Canadian series had no access to the original helicopter, if it could have even afforded the $1,000 an hour helicopter footage cost in those days. To that end, any Erwolf footage used in the Canadian series that wasn't stock from the CBS run was either unseen outtakes or a remote control toy. Entire episodes would sometimes be built around the stock footage. This isn't why I discount the Canadian series, though. I discount it because it's largely weak source compared to even the more pitiful episodes of the original, but also because it undoes what was a satisfactory ending to the show. If we look at the show from the pilot to the final episode, Birds of Paradise, as one long arc, something I really don't think the producers intended, but go with me, Erwolf is the story of a broken and damaged man, Stringfellow Hawk, who has cut himself off from humanity. The series demonstrates him learning to trust again. The arrival of Levan Hawk, Sinjin's son, allows Hawk to take that final step to becoming part of the human race once more by finally putting the past behind him and acknowledging his brother's death and taking on the responsibility of being a father to his orphaned nephew. Had the fourth season started with Hawk simply handing over Erwolf to the firm and saying he considered their obligation over with, and then built a new series around new people learning to pilot the Super Chopper on missions of national concern, I think I'd have gone with it. Killing Dominic, making no mention of Caitlin or Levan, and simply saying Archangel was now in the Middle East was lazy, as was bringing Sinjin back and having him be the helicopter pilot, as I'm pretty sure it was never mentioned that he was a pilot in the original run. Having him be played by Barry Van Dyke was another nail in its coffin. Erwolf seems fondly remembered, despite only running for two and a half years in its original configuration. Whilst it doesn't seem to have the pop culture penetration of the A-Team or Knight Rider, the early episodes stand the test of time quite well, even if the show's quality plummeted rapidly as the series continued. It's another of those shows that seems more popular in the rest of the world than in the US, and this fandom have kept the show alive. The fact that it received a Blu-ray release well before other long-running and more memorable series is a testament to its appeal. 
With Werewolf, I also don't know why I like it like I do. It's a better show than others of its ilk, sure, but it never made a classic episode, never flew to the highest heights and sometimes plumbed the depths, but there was just something about this comic book style series that spoke to me, and still does. There's a pure, unabashed wish fulfilment to this show that resonates. Who wouldn't love to live away from it all in Hawk's cabin? And who wouldn't love to have a super vehicle hidden in a mountain in the desert at your disposal? At the very least, it'd make parking easier. To the email section of the show. Chris Franklin emailed in. No subject heading this time. Hello, Andy. I was right there with you on Enterprise. In fact, your early thoughts on and experiences with the show were so like mine, I was momentarily confused that I had somehow developed a Northern England accent and recorded a solo Supermates episode about this series. That would be confusing, Chris. But then I realised we were just on the same hailing frequency. I was hopeful for Enterprise and then found out they were going to muck around with Trek's past, so that was a ding. Scott Bakula was a plus, and then I watched it. It wasn't bad, but I left a few episodes into season one. I have heard good things about the later season managed to catch the end of the finale, which was just odd. The creators trying to wrap up their entire TV run was done similarly on Justice League in limited season two, when Bruce, Tim and company thought they weren't going to get an order for more episodes. So they used the last show to tie the Justice League United closer to their original Batman animated series and Batman Beyond. While I liked it at the time, and it still is a great story, I still question whether or not it should have been the last episode of JLU. Thankfully it wasn't, and we got another season with a more proper team effort finale. Enterprise wasn't so lucky. Having said all that, I'm going to give those Mirror in Universe inspired episodes a try based on your recommendation. I've heard of them, but I had no idea they tied into one of my favourite treks, the Tholian Web. Off to Netflix. Great episode, as always, Chris. Uh, good, Chris. I'm glad I uh, got you to try one of them out. Uh, let me know if you did watch In a Mirror Darkly, because I would um, very much like to know what you thought of it. I'll cover it on Supermates. That could be cool. Thank you, Chris. Our next email is from the mighty Gene Hendricks. Gregarious Gene Hendricks. Andy. I was glad that you took a look back at Star Trek Enterprise, and yes, that's what I call it, regardless of what the producers want it called. I'm always happy to hear others' opinions on Trek, but I have to say you didn't change mine. As I stated on an episode of Listen to the Prophets, which also came out the same week as this episode, I didn't want a lot from this show other than it didn't contradict the original series. Unfortunately, that seemed to be the show's mission statement. You remember the line from Balance of Terror? Spock, as you may recall from your histories, this conflict was fought by our standards today with primitive atomic weapons and in primitive space vessels, which allowed no quarter, no captives, nor was there any ship-to-ship -ship visual communication. Therefore, no human, Romulan, or ally has ever seen the other. And what do we see really early on in Star Trek Enterprise? That's right, ship-to-ship -ship visual communication. More than anything else, even the temporal Cold War, ugh, this turned me off the show. 
Yes, it may have had good, even great episodes that followed, but when you take your time to purposely go against what came before, you've lost me. Well, I think I think a lot of that, Gene's down to Berman. Berman, I don't think, ever hid the fact that he wasn't in love with the original show. And one of the reasons I tuned out of Enterprise early on as well, although I don't think I mentioned it in the show, was that, that, that desire to just contradict the original show. A, an effort, I think, to play down Kirk's importance, that suddenly Archer did all these things before Kirk did them, that did irk, I won't lie to you. But I do think that the storytelling got better in the show's third and fourth seasons. And ultimately, I'm one of those people that can ignore, grudgingly, continuity errors if the story and character is interesting to me. Um, and I get why some people can't do that. I just get it. You want, If you want your Star Trek to be consistent, then it ain't going to be. And I, I totally understand why you wouldn't want to stick with it for that, because that is a blatant contradiction. I think it's also, as well, that mistake probably wouldn't have happened had Manny Cotto and Judith and Garfield Real Stevens been in it from the beginning. But at the same time, there's a certain element of drama that you don't get if you don't see them talking to each other on the view screen. So maybe that was one of those decisions where, for the sake of drama, they sacrificed continuity. And again, I can I can turn a blind eye to that, begrudgingly, if I'm enjoying the characters and the story. Gene continues, Harv Bennett sat down and watched every episode of the original series for ideas and we got the best Star Trek movie of all time. Berman and Braga set out to ignore the original series and what we got was Star Trek Enterprise, which they were even embarrassed to call Star Trek for the first two seasons. I have hope for the new series, Star Trek Discovery, which is set much closer to the original and even uses an old design from Star Trek Phase 2. I'll be interested to hear your opinion on that when it comes out. Love the show, Steve, Gene. Oh, have no fear, Gene. I will no doubt have an opinion on, on Star Trek Discover. Gene hosts the Hammer Strikes. The Hamster Strikes. I don't know what that is. The Hammer Podcast, the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and has a Patreon page for his Hammer Strikes podcasts if you want to contribute to that. I'm sure Gene would greatly appreciate it. Uh, that's it for this time. Again, I have no idea what's coming next. I'm really flying on a wing and a prayer at the moment. But as usual, I will mention the Two True Freaks Amazon link, which is on the Two True Freaks page. Click on that when you're buying anything from Amazon and we get a kickback and it keeps the shows alive and kicking, but costs you nothing extra. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you very much enjoyed it. Uh, I know I did because I love doing uh, stuff about Erwolf and bad 80s television generally. These episodes are never as popular as when you talk about Star Trek or comics, but hey, you know, I enjoy doing them, and I think that's what matters. Um, Palace of Glitter and Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation, and you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you have anything to say about this episode, or maybe some suggestions for future shows. See you soon. Take care. Goodbye.